You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Jocelyn Green inspires faith and courage as the award-winning author of numerous fiction and nonfiction books, including The Mark of the King, A Refuge Assured, and The Windy City Saga. She lives with her husband and two children in Iowa. Jocelyn, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we are so excited to have you back. You were one of the earliest ones we interviewed, actually, before I got a chance to. So I'm excited to get to talk to you. (laughs) But to start with something fun, as a writer, of course, you're also a reader. But how much time do you actually get to spend reading? Well, the first thought that comes to mind is not nearly enough, of course. But to be honest, it really depends on the writing stage that I'm in. When I'm writing a rough draft, I my discretionary reading time is really limited, but I do fit in audiobooks. So I listen to roughly a book a week that way. And I try to read, well, I do read every night before I go to sleep because it helps me take my brain off of my own story because I don't want to fall asleep and be working while I'm sleeping. That's not very restful at all. And I also like to start the day by reading somebody else's book in the morning just because it's a really great way to help refill my creative well and just to not get too stuck on my own my own story. Well, that is really, well, for one, it's humble, but it's also really smart just being able to um, kind of have other sources outside of yourself really coming into that creative moment and recharging you, so to speak. They say that to write good quality fiction, we're supposed to be reading plenty of good quality fiction, which isn't always easy to do. Thank goodness for audiobooks. Yes. Now, what are some of the best books you've ever read? Well, I have a list a mile long, but I know your show isn't that long, so I will try to limit myself. (laughs) Um, The few that come to mind right away are books that I've read more than once. Peace Like a River by Leif Enger, Flight of the Sparrow by Amy Belding Brown, As Bright as Heaven by Susan Meisner. Those are all general market books. But if I was going to talk specifically about Christian historical fiction, which is more my favorite genre, uh, Many Sparrows by Laurie Benton, the entire Shadows Over England series by Rosanna White, Chasing Shadows by Lynn Austin, and just about anything by Joanna Davidson Politano or Julie Klassen, I could go on. But that'll give you a little taste of what I find wonderful. That's cool. What do you think maybe are some themes that kind of run through these books? Have you ever thought about like what draws you to these in particular? Yes. Well, for some of them, some of them are set during world wars. And those are always popular with a lot of lovers of historical fiction because the setting is so dramatic. The stakes are so incredibly high. And I think we all find inspiration from looking back at what people went through and how they overcame it and how they really struggled with their faith. How does a loving God allow such evil to happen on earth and how they kind of work through that and come through the other side. 
Some of the other books are not set during wars. And for instance, Julie Klassen and her Tales from Ivy Hill series. Those books to me are just totally feel good little English village books that I read when I just want to feel like somebody's giving me a warm hug. I mean, I just love them. The cast of characters are all just so charming and delightful. And then there are other books set during early American um, frontier times, and that's inspiring as a historical setting. But Lori Benton and Laura France as well are both just absolute masters of their craft. Their writing is lyrical and poetic. And I could say the same thing about Joanna Davidson Politano. She writes more Victorian England stories, but the way she tells her stories are packed with meaning. I mean, the metaphors and analogies, she doesn't spell everything out, but the discerning reader will pick up on pictures that she's painting. And like when I'm listening to one of her books, I will just say, oh my gosh, that is a picture of Christ. That's it. And it's just like I found a treasure that she's just hidden there for the reader. So different reasons, but um, there are definitely some themes there. Yes, yes. And I love how you mentioned like the writing style and because as creatives, especially that can be a huge part of filling your creative well is, you know, when the writing is, like you say, lyrical, beautiful, you know, almost like poetry, only it's a story. Mm -hmm. And of course, historical is, yeah, like you say, that's always, it is inspiring because usually the stakes are so higher. They feel so much higher compared right. to what we, we live with. Yeah, it gives us that inspiration. I agree. I think it gives a great perspective and just helps us to realize that even though our own generation has its own struggles, we're not the only generation that has faced hard times. Yes. Now, is there a book that's been turned into a movie that you thoroughly enjoyed? Yes. The first one um, that I would love to mention is To Kill a Mockingbird, which was, you know, kind of reaching way back there. But To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those books that the story itself is profound, but also the writing, again, is just really I mean, you. I went to a writer's conference one year, and there was a workshop called Everything I Need to Know About Writing I Learned from To Kill a Mockingbird. So that gives you some idea of all the things that we could learn from it. Um, another one that comes to mind is, and this is not a movie, so I might be cheating here, bending the rules a little bit for your question, but the Poldark series was based on the books by Winston Graham. I started off watching the Poldark show and then went to the books, and I love them both. Although I have to say, the Poldark TV show series got a little soap opera-y near the end. That was a little disappointing, but in the beginning, I loved it so much. That's neat. I actually didn't realize that that one was based on a book series. I sometimes feel like visual media that is based on a book will have a richness to it that something created purely for film or series may not always have. Not all the time, but sometimes if it's drawing from a book, it's like the characters will have more depth and there's just something about it that's really cool. I agree. Yep. Yeah. I wonder if it's the process of taking a novel and turning it into a screenplay and then turning it into a movie as opposed to writing a screenplay and then having the movie. I wonder if that is what kind of 
makes way for that, that real deepness that you're talking about, Darcy. Yeah, it, you can kind of put more in a novel than you can in a sp- screenplay. So I mm-hmm. think that even when it gets distilled down into a screenplay, maybe there's something left of that richness. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Jocelyn, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Yes, there is actually something that's really interesting that I it hasn't come up in any of my other interviews so far, and it had no place in the book at all. So this is just like random research trivia and Speaking of uh, PBS shows like Poldark, this is for all the Downton Abbey fans out there. Howard Carter was the man who discovered King Tut's tomb. And King Tut relates to the Metropolitan Affair because in 1925, his tomb had just recently been opened. So there was this craze for all things King Tut, all things Egyptian. All right, so going back to my interesting little tidbit, um, Howard Carter was the man who discovered the tomb, but his digs were funded by Lord Carnarvon. I have such a hard time with that last name, but he was the fifth earl who lived at Highclere Castle. And Highclere, of course, is the castle where Downton Abbey was filmed. And just recently, the eighth earl and countess at Highclere have opened up some, what was it, new Egyptian exhibitions in the cellars of Highclere. And Lady Carnarvon, the eighth one, of course, the one who's there today, she has recently published a book. Um, I think it's called Egypt at Highclere. And she's got this amazing Instagram account. So there is this really cool King Tut connection with Highclere Castle, which of course did not fit in the Metropolitan Affair at all. But I thought that was really fascinating. That is cool. The things you uncover. And I love that they're still embracing that today, having the exhibits. and Yes, I thought so too. That's so neat. Well, speaking of the Metropolitan Affair, let's go ahead and read the blurb and get to talking about it. For years, her estranged father promised Dr. Lauren Westlake she'd accompany him on one of his Egyptian expeditions, giving her hope for the sense of belonging she's always craved. But as the empty promises mounted, Lauren determined to earn her own way. Now, the assistant curator of Egyptology for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Lauren receives two unexpected invitations. The first is her repentant father's offer to finally bring her to Egypt as his colleague on a fascinating new expedition. The second is a chance to enter the glittering world of New York's wealthiest patrons who have been victims of art fraud. With Egyptomania sweeping the city after the discovery of King Tut's tomb, Detective Joe Caravello is on the hunt for a notorious forger preying on the open wallets of New York's high society. Dr. Westlake is just the expert he needs to help him identify fake relics and track down the con artist. Together, they search for the truth, and the closer Lauren and Joe get to discovering the forger's identity, the more entangled they become in a web of deception and crime. Mm, So this is a detective story during the 1920s when Egyptomania was at an all-time high, and we have some romance as well. So Jocelyn, can you share with us what inspired this story? 
Sure, of course. Well, I had been trying to come up with the ideas for the next series after my Windy City Saga series concluded, and I was I came up with what I thought were some pretty good ideas, but they just weren't working out with my editor. So he had the idea of looking up what historical anniversaries will we be approaching at the time this next book releases. And that's when we found that fall of 2022 marked the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. So that was the thing that made us think, hmm, I wonder if we can do anything with this. But at the same time, we wanted to have it set in America. We didn't want it to be set over in Egypt. We wanted American characters. We wanted a strong female lead. So that set me you know, on this little internet search, clicking here and there and everywhere. And I finally discovered a real woman who was the first assistant curator of Egyptology at the Met. Her name was Caroline Ransom, and she was there in 1906. So I really established my protagonist after Caroline, except by with taking the creative liberty of setting the book in 1925 so that we could take advantage of all of this really fun Egyptomania going on. Plus, the 1920s in New York City has prohibition and speakeasies and all of this stuff, which just made for a really colorful backdrop. And not just a backdrop, all of that actually played a role in the plot as well. I feel like the 1920s is the (laughs) ideal place for a detective story because there was so much going on. But yeah, the discovery of King Tut's tomb doesn't necessarily make it into stories a lot. So that sounds like a fun angle to explore. You know, I love reading books that are going to expose me to pieces of history that I'm not especially familiar with. Me too. Good. I'm glad. So as you mentioned, Dr. Westlake in your novel is an assistant curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And Detective Joe, of course, is a detective with the New York City Police, I'm guessing. So can you tell us a bit about these two characters? Sure. Well, when we meet them, um, Lauren is 32 and I think Joe's 35. So they're a little bit older than most um, inspirational historical fiction um lead male and females. Lauren and Joe were friends when they were children and teenagers, but then they drifted apart when she went to college. Um, he was he grew up uh, in a working class family. She grew up very comfortably. And basically, her family told him not to come around. And so they they drifted apart. So in the beginning of the story, Joe has this gilded oyster shell that he thinks is a clue for something important that has happened in a case that he's not supposed to be investigating, but he thinks it's an Egyptian artifact, and he wants Dr. Westlake, his old friend, to look at it and tell him whether it's genuine or fake. So, of course, he shows it to her, and she can tell him in two seconds the verdict, and he asks her to become his consultant for this um, new angle that he wants to pursue, and that is looking into forgeries, because he's convinced that just shutting down speakeasies is not working because they just padlock the doors and a speakeasy pops up somewhere else within a matter of months. Um, So he decides that he needs her help, and through that, they just 
I wouldn't say they pick up exactly where they left off, but they definitely um, rekindle the friendship that they had and then some. Ah, uh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I just love when you have just the rejoining when there's someone who they've been friends as young people and separated for some reason and then come back together and there's that friendship again. I think it's typically called like childhood sweethearts. I don't know if that really applies to Joe and Lauren, but it has some themes that just feel really similar. So no, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So now... You have your 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 Windy City Saga books and your Civil War books, if my memory serves me correctly. Yep, yep, you're right. <laughs> so what sets the Metropolitan Affair apart from the other stories that you've written? That's a great question. And it definitely is a little bit of a departure from what I've written in the past, but that was on purpose. What sets this apart is there's not a war going on and there's not a natural disaster and there's not a man-made disaster. Almost every single other book that I've written either took place in a time of war or there was a fire or there was a capsizing of a steamship or, you know, some huge dramatic tragic event. So after I had written the Windy City Saga series, The last book in that series was Drawn by the Current, and that was about the Eastland disaster, the steamship that tipped over in the Chicago River, and 844 people died. Well, what a lot of readers may or may not know is that what you guys can read in a matter of days or weeks, we authors spend a year, some of us, I do, dwelling in that place. And it's emotional. It is taxing. And so after I had written that story, I was ready for a break from the depth of that kind of a story. So in the Metropolitan Affair, I wouldn't say that it's a a light and shallow read, but it just, it's a different, it's a change of pace and it's a change of setting, a little bit more modern. And the drama is more interpersonal. It's we do have the romance, but we also have Lauren and her father, who they those two had been estranged for years. And she's trying to decide: is it worth it to try to reconcile with my dad? Do I even trust him enough after he's broken so many promises to me? So the Metropolitan Affair goes deep, deep into character and doesn't rely on these giant you know, world events that I had portrayed in my earlier novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know just sometimes reading books that are like that, you know, just as a reader where I finish this in several hours or several days, you know, I can sometimes carry that weight, especially topics like during World War II and the prison camps and different things like that, because they're they're based on real events and just really heavy topics. So that makes sense. And then I also like that now you're putting out this book, The Metropolitan Affair, and how without having such a heavy, heavy, you know, the burden of the natural disaster of the war, you still have inspirational messages. And it's just so wonderful to see a family relationship where there's reconciliation. I hope there's reconciliation. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm assuming there's some healing that takes place. So I guess, see, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to like give away spoilers. So I don't read the books before I talk to authors. So right, you can always correct me. <laughs> well, I will say that there is definitely healing, but the way that Lauren gets to the healing is probably mm. not what you would expect. Oh, I like that. Because I find that God works that way. Yeah, sometimes that's real life. We we have an idea of how things should look for us to grow or to heal, maybe especially in complicated relationships. And it doesn't always work out that way. That's but that right. doesn't mean that he's not in it or that he's not working something really good and beautiful, even if it's not what we expected. Great job. You have pretty much summed up <laughs> the book. That is right. <laughs> no, it's so true. And there are, you know, I I like to give happily ever after endings, but there are a couple of books that I've written where the ending is not what readers expect, but I want to offer an alternative happily ever after Mm -hmm. because life doesn't always tie up in a shiny little bow. And I want to give readers the hope that, man, if what you're going through isn't wrapping up the way you thought it should or the way you had long dreamed that it would wrap up, that doesn't mean that what God has for you is not even more fulfilling than you thought it could be. And Mm -hmm. even though there is heartache in life, God is there. It's basically what Darcy said. I'll just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this sounds like a really good story. And I love that you are delving into the family relationships, because that is something that carries through the centuries. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say with the Metropolitan Affair, even though the people who have read it, they, they like Joe, some of them love Joe, and I'm glad that they do. But the more important relationship to me in the book is between Lauren and her father, and even Lauren and her mother, although her mother had passed away when when Lauren was 15. But the way that I work the mother into the story is that she finds a bunch of letters and she talks to her aunt and she basically gets to know her mom more after her passing than she did when she was still alive, which is kind of strange. But but I wanted to drive that point home too, that we can do that because Jesus isn't here on earth in the flesh with us anymore, but he's given us a whole bunch of letters. And we can get to know him and we can draw closer and closer to him through the written word. So that that little angle, I was not explicit in spelling that out in the story, but I hope that people pick up on the fact that we can have relationships with, or each of us can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, even though he's not directly standing in front of us. Oh, I like that parallel that you drew. That's good. Well, now that this one is out to seek its fortune, what are you working on next? (laughs) I am working on the second book in this series. The series is called On Central Park because the three books in the series are all based on three different protagonists who are all roommates, and they all work at different museums on Central Park. So we've had Lauren working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the next one is her cousin, Elsa, who is an ornithologist who works at the American Museum of Natural History. So she's not so much into Egyptology. She's all about the birds. (laughs) Another learning curve for me. (laughs) 
right? We get so much research in. You'll be a scientist by the time you're done with this series. Yeah, I would love an honorary degree of some kind at some point in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And for our listeners, Jocelyn is offering a copy of The Metropolitan Affair. To enter that giveaway, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com, and click on the giveaways tab. I will also have a direct link in the show notes for this episode. And Jocelyn, how can our listeners connect with you? You can come on over to my website, jocelyngreen.com. And if you'd like to sign up for the newsletter, you can do that at the bottom of the homepage. Otherwise, if you're into social media and all that jazz, at the top of the website, there's a contact tab. And if you click that, you'll see all my handles for Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been fun just chatting with you. Well, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Now for a pinch of the past. Recently, my comfort show has been Walt Disney's children's television series, Zorro. After a few episodes, I noticed similarities between this character and that of the American legend, The Lone Ranger. And I wondered which came first. So today, I am dragging you all down a rabbit hole into the origins of television's two classic masked heroes. Oh, this should be good. I actually was exposed to the old, like, old Lone Ranger and Zorro. And I think they were made about the same time. But I I really enjoyed them as a girl. Yeah, they're super fun. Well, we'll get into it a little bit more. Zorro is a fictional character in old Spanish-settled California. By day, he's young Diego de la Vega, son of a local wealthy landowner, and he's posing as a bookworm and a musician who's unwilling to take action against the injustices in his community. Behind his black mask at night, he rides as El Zorro, the fox, to right the wrongs he cannot openly expose. He's an expert at fencing, which nobody knows when he's Diego de la Vega skilled with a pistol and bullwhip, and evades every attempt at capture. He only intervenes in overt injustice. He goes out of his way to avoid bloodshed, and he is aided by his manservant, Bernardo, who is actually pretty much just as clever as Diego. So it was done for a children's show, and you can kind of tell it as it goes along, but it's actually super fun. The Lone Ranger, on the other hand, wears his black mask constantly. No one knows his true identity of John Reed. His group of Texas Rangers were ambushed by an outlaw gang, and John was the lone survivor nursed back to health by an Indian named Tonto. The two take to the road to right injustice wherever they might find it. The Lone Ranger always uses perfect grammar, lives by a strict moral creed, including such values as all men are created equal, and be prepared to fight when necessary for what is right. He also does not kill, but typically shoots the gun out of his opponent's hand or something like that. So both these heroes wore masks, they each had a trusty sidekick and a well-trained horse, and both were designed as models for children's shows, Little Bloodshed, and in the case of Zorro, a fair dose of humor. So who came first? You want to take a guess, Kylie? On TV or historically? Historically, like their first ever introduction. Um, Probably Zorro. You are correct. He was created in 1919 by newspaperman turned fiction writer Johnston McCulley. The pulp fiction magazine All-Star Weekly printed the first Zorro story, The Curse of Capistrano, in five serialized parts. So pulp magazines had first launched in 1896. They were printed on the cheapest pulp mill paper, and they featured all kinds of stories, but became known for far-fetched adventure tales, kind of like Penny Dreadfuls or dime novels. 
vastly popular, apparently they drew filmmakers' attention because one year after Zorro saw print, he made it to the big screen in the highly successful silent film, The Mark of Zorro. Wow. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I actually didn't know that Pulp Fiction was that old, but I assume that, yeah, I don't know why Zorro just seems older. It kind of has that feel somehow, yeah. Maybe it's because he was set further back. I don't know. But the film introduced Zorro's iconic all-black costume, complete with hat and cape. And while the first Zorro novel was meant to be the last, and Macaulay's character revealed his identity to the town at the very end, the audience couldn't get enough of Zorro. So inspired by the film's success, Macaulay picked up the character again, and Zorro rode through a total of 64 novels over four decades. Wow! Yes. Oh my goodness. The final novel was actually published after the author's death in 1958. In 1936, Republic Pictures released their first color film called The Bold Caballero, featuring none other than El Zorro. And the next year, they released a serialized film about Zorro. So this played in theaters, but it was in episodes. In 1940, The Mark of Zorro was remade with sound. In 1932, radio station owner George W. Trendle wanted to go independent with his station WXYZ. The name cracks me up. And he decided a radio drama was the key. He hired freelance writer Francis Hamilton, or Fran Stryker, to create a character inspired by Robin Hood and none other than El Zorro. Stryker was credited with The Lone Ranger's creation early on, and he wrote all the episodes for many years. That was like 156 episodes a year. It was insane. So in January 1933, The Lone Ranger rode onto the Detroit, Michigan airwaves, and he made it to national radio only one year later. And he remained there for two decades. The show's success was responsible for bringing together four radio networks in Cincinnati, Chicago, and New York, as well as the WXYZ of Detroit, into the Mutual Radio Network in 1934. This network became home to shows including The Adventures of Superman, as well as the primary broadcaster of Major League Baseball which I thought it was kind of funny that um, a kid's radio drama ended up being so successful that it, it created this network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first recorded episode was the Osage Bank robbery. For five years of episodes prior to that, they were performed live on the air. Oh, my goodness. Was, um, what is it? I Love Lucy. Was that live? That was also performed live and then recorded, but these radio episodes were performed live and not recorded, so they just disappeared. All that was left was a script and the (gasps) listener's memory. Oh my goodness. That's kind of sad. It is kind of sad, right? There's five years worth of episodes that never we can never hear. Mm -hmm. But in 1938, Republic Pictures again serialized a masked hero and took the Lone Ranger to the big screen with 15 weekly episodes, which they later called together into a film. Different actors were credited with playing the lead so that his reveal at the end of the series when he took off his mask would surprise audiences more. Oh, okay. I wonder if you could like really tell the difference. Right? It's like if they were actually having different actors play, I feel like you might could tell. But I don't I don't get the obsession with like revealing his mask because I was exposed to the TV series first and they never take off their masks in the TV series. But in the novels and in these serialized films, they often did. Oh. So it was on television where these two masked men became the American icons we know today. The Lone Ranger made it to the small screen first in 1941, portrayed by Clayton Moore with his partner Tonto portrayed by Jay Silverheels, except for the years 1950 through 53 when John Hart played the lead due to disputes between Clayton Moore and the TV studio. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. 
But the original writer of the radio show, Fran Stryker, actually worked on many of the TV episodes, and it was on TV where the Lone Ranger's backstory emerged. His brother Dan, we discover, was one of the Rangers killed in that initial ambush. And the Lone Ranger also has a silver mine of his family's, which finances his mission of justice, which kind of reminds me of Zorro. His father was a wealthy landowner, so neither of them have to actually work for a living. But anyway... Mm -hmm. A total of 200 episodes aired until the show ended in 1957, and it was highly successful in reruns. The year The Lone Ranger ended, Walt Disney acquired the film rights to Zorro and brought another mass vigilante to television. Disney built an entire old Spanish-style pueblo on the backlot of his property, and in a decade where Westerns were the undisputed favorite with viewers, and even the writers of Westerns had no clue why they were so popular, Disney Zorro was the highest budget Western to date. Wow, that's amazing. Exactly. You wouldn't know it by looking at it necessarily, but with the set and I guess the scripts and everything and the filming, it was the best you could do at the time. The studio chose 33-year-old Guy Williams to star. He had the looks, the charm, and most importantly, he already had fencing and writing skills. Williams had actually played a bit part on the Lone Ranger earlier in his career, and now it's his turn to wear the mask. Oh, fun. The show was an instant success, ran for two seasons with a total of 78 episodes. Zorro and the Lone Ranger over the decades also saw animations, comic strips, live-action remakes, colorizations, and novels chronicling their adventures. Zorro seems to have done better with various actors over his hundred years on the screen, but the Lone Ranger might be more ubiquitous in classic Americana. The stories themselves are fine, but simple. The TV shows were short, filmed in black and white. So what makes them live on through decades? I guess it must be the characters, heroes with integrity who fight and sacrifice for good. Maybe in our heart of hearts, we'd still like to believe in and be that kind of hero. Isn't that why we read inspirational fiction after all? Time for our bookworm review. Beauty has been nothing but a curse to Penelope Snow. When she becomes a personal maid for a famous actress whose troupe is leaving Chicago to tour the West, she hides her figure behind shapeless dresses and keeps her head down. But she still manages to attract the wrong attention, leaving her prospects in tatters, and her jealous mistress plotting her demise. After his brother lost his life over a woman, Texas Ranger Titus Kingsley has learned to expect the worst from females and is rarely disappointed. So when a young woman found in suspicious circumstances takes up residence with the seven old drovers living at his grandfather's ranch, Titus is determined to keep a close eye on her. With her promotion hanging in the balance, Titus investigates a robbery case tied to Penelope's old acting troupe. The evidence points to her guilt, but Titus's heart divines a different truth, one that just might get Penelope killed. An enchanting western take on the classic Snow White fairy tale, Fairest of Heart will sweep you away from once upon a time to happily ever after. I just finished reading Fairest of Heart by Karen Wittemeyer, and I absolutely loved this book. This is a book that gets you tied in the throat in a good way. The spirit of Snow White is so well captivated in Sweet Penelope that I found myself connecting with her on an emotional level. True, she is nearly angelic, but Karen's portrayal of her goodness is so authentic, one can hardly claim it contrived, at least, that is, if you know your Bible. Why is this, you ask? More than her personality or characteristics, what makes Penelope a princess is her kind and gentle spirit of godly love and selflessness. As for the seven dwarfs, that is the seven retired ranch hands. 
Doc had me missing my childhood pastor while sweet Rowdy, who portrays Dopey from Disney's classic version, had me wanting to dive into the pages and just give him a big hug. (laughs) And did I mention Grumpy? I mean, Jeb. Nothing like a cantankerous, loving old man to make you want to watch a John Wayne movie. As for the hero, Titus Kingsley, I love that name. He is a hardened man, though not so much that he treats Penelope or anyone else like a doormat. He is wise when confronted with Narcissa, the beautiful actress extraordinaire. I really enjoyed reading about a heroic man who was flawed, yet didn't turn into a complete numbskull in the face of an attractive seductress like the female villain. This is by far my favorite retelling of Snow White. If you're feeling reminiscent for the old Disney that we grew up on, but want something wholesome and endearing with a Western spin, pick up a copy of Karen Wittemeyer's Fairest of Heart. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.